Hello and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Krauss, licensed professional counselor. I am so excited to have Mark Nepo on the show today. I've been looking forward to this for some time. If you don't know Mark, let me tell you a little bit about him before the interview starts. With over a million copies sold, Mark Nepo has moved and inspired readers and seekers all over the world with his number one New York Times bestseller, The Book of Awakening. Beloved as a poet, teacher, and storyteller, Mark has been called one of the finest spiritual guides of our time, a consummate storyteller, and an eloquent spiritual teacher. His work is widely accessible and used by many, and his books have been translated into more than 20 languages. A best-selling author, he has published 22 books and recorded 15 audio projects. In 2015, he was given a Life Achievement Award by Age Nation. In 2016, he was named by Watkins, Mind, Body, Spirit, as one of the 100 most spiritually influential living people, and was also chosen as one of Own's Super Soul 100, a group of inspired leaders using their gifts and voices to elevate humanity. And in 2017, Mark became a regular columnist for Spirituality and Health magazine. Recent work of Mark's includes The Book of the Soul, Drinking from the River of Light, More Together Than Alone, cited by Spirituality and Practice as one of the best spiritual books of 2018, Things That Join the Sea in the Sky, a Nautilus Book Award winner, The Way Under the Way, The Place of True Meeting, a Nautilus Book Award winner again, The One Life We're Given, cited by Spirituality and Practice as one of the best spiritual books of 2016. Inside the Miracle, selected by Spirituality and Health Magazine as one of the top 10 books of 2015. The Endless Practice, cited by Spirituality and Practice as one of the best spiritual books of 2014. And 7,000 Ways to Listen, which won the 2012 Books for a Better Life Award. Mark was part of Oprah Winfrey's The Life You Want Tour in 2014 and has appeared several times with Oprah on her Super Soul Sunday program on OWN TV. He has also been interviewed by Robin Roberts on Good Morning America. The Exquisite Risk was listed by Spirituality and Practice as one of the best spiritual books of 2015, calling it one of the best books we've ever read on what it takes to live an authentic life. Mark devotes his writing and teaching to the journey of inner transformation and the life of relationship. He continues to offer teachings, readings, lectures, and retreats, and you can find out more of that uh, at the end of the show, but we talk about um, his website, threeintentions.com, marknepo.com, and you'll find more about that. Well, now for the interview. Mark Nepo, thank you so much for coming on the Intentional Clinician Podcast. Oh, you're welcome. It's great to be with you. And I'm really glad you agreed to speak with me after I um, co- coincidentally ran into you at the Sounds True conference in uh, <laughs> a coffee shop in, uh, back at 1440 Multiversity where you were speaking. It was kind yes, of... Yes. <laughs> kind of a strange meeting, uh, and I took the opportunity to... Uh, interrupt your conversation and, and ask if I could interview you. And I appreciate you following through with my uh, request. Sure, sure. I'm, I'm happy to. So, uh, you know, some people have probably heard of you before if they're clicking on this podcast. And so, you know, they'll they'll kind of know what's going on. But I kind of want to, I, I, I think we'll get to a lot of maybe your story about how you became 
the person we know now and the author and the poet. But I kind of want to just ask a little bit about what's going on now. I really like to find out uh, what people are up to. And I just heard that you have a new book coming out called The Book of the Soul, uh, 52 Paths to Living What Matters, which is actually coming out on May 5th, 2020. Um, yeah. Could you tell a little tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, actually, that's that will be my 22nd book, which I can't believe, you know, even saying that it's beyond all of my wildest dreams, never imagined it. Um, but it's because I write about what I need to know, not what I know. And if I only wrote about what I know, I would have written very little. <laughs> but this book is, you know, e each book is an inquiry and it's not about me sharing what I know, it's about the path and the notes on the trail of where that inquiry goes. And so, you know, this book was really uh, turned out to be a culmination of a lot of learnings throughout the years where I would, you know, explore one thing, touch on it in an earlier book, and that just opened the door. And then I found myself here going, oh, I'm, oh, that's what that, oh, and that went over to that book. Oh, I see what that's all about. So, you know, over time we learn a lot more and, and these things grow and evolve in us. And so this is really kind of a culmination. And, and what the book is really the kind of whole way into the book is, um, you know, we all know that physically, biologically, we lay, we we're in our mother's womb for nine months. There's this beautiful, terrible labor <laughs> that births us into the world. And so the metaphor for this book is, you know, once we're here, we enter a second labor and where we, where the soul is birthed through experience into the world. And that's our life journey. And that's, you know, which is filled with everything. And so a lot of the book explores what, what is our true inheritance, which is one of the sections, there's four sections in the book, our walk in the world, how do we widen our circle, and, and eventually how do we, you know, we, it, personally we all try to be, you know, I think our goal individually is we try to be who we are everywhere. And we start out maybe trying it in front of the mirror and in our home and then with a few friends, close friends. And, and then I think, you know, eventually uh, the hope is we keep ex widening that circle till we are who we are everywhere. And it's the same thing with spiritual practice. You know, whatever the tradition, um, the temple, the mosque, the Sangha, the elder council in Native American, whatever it might be, formal, informal, that's where we practice being who we are in community and practice the spiritual journey. But I, I think the real aim is that the temple is the world. Yeah, the, temp the temple has no walls. You know, eventually it's everywhere. And yeah, we, we all have to go. Um, you know, that's one of the paradoxes of life from the beginning is that we, 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 we have to go out and be in the world, but we also have to take a pause to try to make sense of it. And so whether it's formal or informal, and that's how we have retreats or, you know, again, community circles or the, the uh, recovery rooms, whatever they might be, family, trusted family, we stop and go, wait a minute, what happened here? What, what's going on? And then we go back out into the world. You know, those circles have always, I always say, uh, before I start a circle, that this is a resource, not a refuge. 
It's all one world. And we get strength from each other to go back out there. But it's all one world. Now, you know, imagine all the way back in cave times, you know, the first clan and they're out hunting a mountain lion. And all of a sudden the mountain lion's chasing them, right? Now they're back in the cave, scared, heart pumping. The lion's roaring at the mouth of the cave. And I'm sure there was somebody, you know, in the back of the cave with his head and his hands going, is this all there is? What are we mm-hmm. doing? And that was probably the first retreat, you know, the first. Right. <laughs> so taking a break. So, yeah, so the, this book uh, talks about the process. And I think what I'm hearing from part of the process you're talking about is taking a retreat on purpose to reflect so you can make sense of what went on and also getting feedback from your community. Um, is important as well and and people and helpers is what I'm hearing kind of a little bit of the undertones there yeah yeah absolutely because you know one of my other recent books was more together than alone we're, we're nobody you know, one of the great paradoxes about being alive is no one who's ever been here who's you mm-hmm. and no one can live your life for you but no one can do it alone and one of the greatest blindnesses is if you think you can, yeah, then you're, you're setting yourself up. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, yeah. If we, it's, uh, there's the joke about how cats believe they're independent and dogs know they're not. I don't know. <laughs> I love it, yeah. They, they sit there and they give you attitude all day and they won't come cuddle <laughs> until they want some tuna fish, right? But the dog is always, I mean, if I, if I ignore my dog for five minutes, she's giving me the look. You know, oh, like, yeah. Like, what yeah. are you doing? In fact, this is, I don't even know, I was going to say this, but the other day I was i was making a joke um, because my wife was on her phone actually making a phone call and our dog ran over. It's a little mini dog, only 10 pounds. And it knocked the phone out of her hand and started licking her face, which I thought was oh, a nice perfect for, for, for the life. I think my dog may be a uh, Zen master, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I love that. Uh, yeah, I've admired your books, be, uh, the ones I've read so far, because I haven't not read all of them. I've only read um, two and a half. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm oh, sure. sort of new to your material, but I, I've admired it because of the universality. I felt like I could recommend your books to anyone and I wouldn't get into any sort of people wouldn't say, why are you recommending this to me? You know, I don't like this stuff. They would They would say, oh my gosh. And they would see it through kind of like, the lens, for instance, I recommended the book of awakening, not only to uh, people I knew that were in spiritual traditions like Christianity, but also in Buddhist and also people that don't consider themselves spiritual at all. And I've gotten great feedback from people. Oh, about thank it. you. So thank I, you. I, appreciate I love that. It. Yeah. So yeah, I'm excited about that book. And well, I'm going to just, I've got some uh, questions about one of your books recently, the one right before this called Drinking from the River of Light. Sure, but sure. I, I think we, we are recording this interview during quarantine. So I figured that perhaps I would like to get a few comments from you about that. Sure. Um, you, you wrote something on Instagram and I'm, I love how you have now, I guess, taken to reading and, and talking on Instagram. Uh, and your name on there is Mark Nepo. People can find you um, making a series. But 
you mind if I read this and maybe you could sure, kind of sure. comment on some sure, of it? Sure, uh, sure. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, you know, just trying to offer something. I've been posting um, daily videos, reading a poem, a reflection, a story, and you know, you know, before all this, I, I, I didn't, I, I couldn't find Instagram. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you're so, really new to this? I'm very new to it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, yeah I was wondering how long you'd been on Instagram because I actually didn't know you were on Instagram yeah. until uh, somebody exactly told me. Exactly as long as we've been quarantined. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm not following you. I should have been doing that the whole time. So, well, I'm glad to welcome to Instagram. It's a uh, it's a dangerous app. So you have to be careful. It's, a, it's both beautiful and wonderful and also highly addicting. So um, I'll read this, what you wrote uh, in March, sure. actually right after it, we had just kind of seen the gravity in the United States start happening, which was months ago under all of the noise and crisscross of commerce and traffic and endless buzz in the human hive, as we were all trying to keep up and get ahead somewhere in the middle of China, in the silent microscopic fabric that no one could see, a minuscule atom shifted under all our noise to link in a dark way with the surrounding atoms and the coronavirus was born. Now the silent germ is infecting the world and challenging us to spread our care and goodwill as quickly and freely in order to survive. This is a hard to grasp lesson, at least one of them, that light must move as quickly as dark that care must move as quickly as disease, that give must move as quickly as take, and nothing less than everything depends on this giving in all directions without hesitation. No question, it's hard, yet imperative to feed more than the fear. We must become intimate with uncertainty and water our common roots with care. Oh, and water our common roots with care. Equally powerful moments in human history have begun with a similar shift of minuscule efforts. Consider Gandhi's first steps alone on his march to the sea. Rosa Parks quietly and steadfastly keeping her seat on that bus. Nelson Mandela singing while being beaten on Robben Island where no one could hear. Or Clara Barton uh, stitching the wounds of a Civil War soldier into the night long before she was visited with the vision of the Red Cross. Since the beginning, light has met dark not in a battle of good and evil, but in the torque of life force that keeps the universe going. And so, love must move as quickly as fear. It is no accident that we are being forced to be still, as there has never been anywhere to run, though we have run for centuries. The times are hard and unexpected. They always are. But the river of being that carries us is always life-giving, if we can reach it. This requires diving where we are not running from what is we must be brave and must be where we must be where mostly of ourselves for the mind is like a spider it will weave many webs but the heart is like an arrow of light it will pierce a hole in the dark that life will fill along the way we stumble in the dark our fierce and tender honesty and love the lamp we swing between us uh. Yeah, thank you. Well, absolutely. I couldn't find anything as good as what you wrote on the internet. All the well, articles. I well, so I just thanks. wanted to. I know, but I would love to hear what you were. What were your well, thoughts? I think are. you know. I think the, this is, and you know, we're all in this together, and I think we are being challenged um, to not hold back and to have love move as quickly as fear and care move as quickly as disease. 
and um, we have these great resources. And, you know, at times like this, uh, and this is unprecedented, but times of difficulty collectively, individually, they make more acute the life choices that are in front of us during what are the, quote, normal ease of days. And this is why, you know, very often throughout history and, you know, we want to say, oh, some, you know, I, you know, I'm a long-term cancer survivor from my work and, you know, I'm 69, but in my thirties, I almost died from a rare form of lymphoma. And, uh, and, you know, so often people want to see if someone gets sick, well, that poor person, that's them. This has nothing to do with me. And we all get our turn. <laughs> we all get our turn at difficulty and adversity. And in those times, we are just, whoever happens to be there is forced into bringing into relief more acutely what everyone has to go through every day. So in fact, the people who suffer and we all suffer have a wisdom the rest of us need. And we often don't turn to people and ask, what did you, what do you see for all that you've been through that we need to learn from you? from where you've been, from what you've been through, you know? And so I think it's very important here. And I think one of the things that's very, uh, it's interesting because the, the whole, I think collectively the, the experience here as, as I'm experiencing it of the shelter in place and the, uh, the uncertainty and the fear really echoes a lot of things I experienced individually during my cancer journey. And, you know, one of the things that became an, a practice, not through any wisdom on my part, because I had to, uh, was it was very hard to discern what is information is accurate and then what's just perpetuating fear. So, you know, I had wonderful doctors and nurses and I had not so wonderful doctors and nurses. And, and even most, you know, almost everyone um, at some point spoke more than what they knew. And I had to develop my, me and my loved ones a practice of saying, okay, what, which actually goes back to real-time practicing of the Buddhist notion of seeing things as they are, which is one of the hardest, simplest uh, practices we, we can engage in. And I, I recommend our paying attention to it to everyone, whether we're in a pandemic or not. And, and so there we are here, you know, we, you know, back then I had to say, what, what, okay, this is where I am. What are the next steps? And then everyone would go beyond that. And there'd be doomsday projections or, you know, you're going to be fine or, and, <clears throat> and I had to start to learn, okay, stop with what you know, because that's all that's useful and just admit you don't know. And the same thing here, you know, there's a lot of unknowns here and um, it's not clear exactly how this thing moves from person to person, which is why it's so important to shelter in place. But, you know, we turn on the news and we've made a practice in our home. You know, we're not, we don't watch anything or, uh, you know, past dinner time or a little after dinner time because it's too upsetting, too disorienting. And when we do watch or tune in on the internet or on TV, um, it's the same thing as when I was going through cancer. I want to hear what are the facts, what are next steps, and then everyone starts moving. Uh, you know, they're just talking like you and me. They just happen to have a camera on them. Everybody's guessing, 
and that inflates and perpetuates fear. And we need to right-size fear, not dismiss it, but right-size it. I like that a lot, uh, the way you said that with your own experience as a metaphor, because I was thinking about that uh, with just, I work as a therapist and I was talking to some clients about their anxiety levels. And when I, when they rated their anxiety level a nine or a 10 out of 10, and they were sheltering in place and washing their groceries and they hadn't left the house in seven days and they didn't have chronic health conditions, et cetera. I asked them what was making it so high. And they said, you know, watching the news. And so I said, it seems like a lot of what they're doing besides telling us the facts is speculation. And that, and I think, you know, they're trying to make sense of the situation, but the speculation can, we, people want to feel safe. And when we don't yeah. feel safe, we feel anxious and we do all sorts of ridiculous coping skills, some good, some yeah. bad. I mean, the ridiculous ones are, I mean, are not usually yet that useful, but we're trying to get some sort of clarity because uh, our life has been disrupted. Our pattern, quote unquote, our pattern, even though it may not have been as predictable as we thought, because uh, it wasn't seems disrupted completely. So we're learning anew what every day is like. So we want to know when it's going to be over or what's going to be the fix or, or anything. And then when we grasp, we just get more and more anxious and we worry, what if this and what if that? So it's really difficult to, it's, it's, it's actually a very difficult practice to yeah. say, okay, what does the government today say you should do? Okay. I guess there'll be more updates tomorrow, but until well, then, I, I think, <laughs> I think we, you know, I think one of the things that's so important is taking this time and feeding more than just our fear. Mm. We have to feed more than our fear. We can't just turn from our fear, but how, by feeding more than our fear, we, our fear lives in us rather than we in our fear. When I am in my fear, then I can drown in it. But when it's in me, and I have other things going, filling me, um, it integrates and right sizes and absorbs, you know? So I, I, you know, part of my daily experience, which I did also felt during my cancer journey is, you know, almost every day there's a bubble or I kind of think of it like a sneeze or a shiver of fear, a little, I get hooked every day, not sure where it'll be, either fear will come out sideways, you know, or, It'll be just something will hook me. And then I, now, you know, that's the work of self-awareness saying, oh, okay, yeah, here it is today. Okay, all right, I feel it. Whoop, adrenaline. Now, now let other things in, let it right size, let it go. You know, I had one of my great teachings about fear came during my cancer journey. And, uh, you know, I have from time to time, the there's a great, Chinese poet Tu Fu from the Tang Dynasty in the 600s, and uh, one of these, one of the first people for me, I read somebody's work across time who I felt, gee, if I could know that guy, I would love to sit down with that guy, you know. And so when I was going through my cancer journey, he appeared as a guide to me a couple of times in dreams, one or two, one or two times, and uh, and the first one was in the height of all my fear, and so. Uh, in the dream, very vivid, um, I was walking along a shore and he was sitting cross-legged on the beach 
with a stick in his hand. And I ran up to him. I said, Hey, how do I block the fear? And he ignored me like, you know, and I got really angry. I, again, I got closer. I said, how do I block the fear? And without looking at me, he took the branch and he waved it over his head. And he said, how does a tree block the wind? And with that, he disappeared. And I woke up. And of course, a tree doesn't block the wind, it lets it through. It lets it through. And we, our reflex is to hold on to it when fear and pain come. But then we've got to develop a practice of relaxing and letting it through, letting it through. I like that a lot. I've often talk to people about making a practice. And I often talk to myself every day about, did I do my practice? Because I notice <laughs> the days, if I do it, I have a, I, I, it doesn't, I don't have a good day. I have a, an aware day and I feel, I usually feel better about a lot of my decisions uh, versus the days that I get up and read the news first thing, or don't take time to orient. I, I, I kind of regret it. So I think sometimes it, it's, it could seem daunting to people, uh, you know, the whole mindfulness movement and meditation and uh, practice and all this. So I, I like in all of your, especially the book of awakening, which I finished um, a few months ago, I, I, I noticed that it was like uh, the, every page was a, a little story, kind of like you just told, like yeah. a really interesting story, maybe with a quote. And then before I knew it, I was being med I was meditating. I was being aware <laughs> and I was letting things through me. And, you know, it was interesting and it may be synchronistic. I'll maybe say this. I didn't think I was going to say this, but here I go. What the day I met you, I had just received within six days of that, like the two most stressful things that have happened to me besides people dying in my life. Oh. Um, I won't go. One of them uh, was a political thing with the licensure in the state of Michigan, which was a long story, which Ugh. eventually resolved and uh, a bill was passed to protect, make sure clients could get counselors and counselors could, could still practice. And something else happened that was also extremely stressful that I can't talk about publicly at this sure. time, maybe in the future, but because um, it's still going on. But I, <laughs> I all of a sudden felt this immense, you know, I felt like I was drowning and, and I, and luckily we had been going to the conference and you were speaking there and then I, I don't remember who I was talking to, somebody at dinner, and they said, oh, have you read the book of Awakening? You know, you liked Mark's talk. Why don't you read this book? So I in immediately got the audio book because I, I like to walk. I, I don't like sitting because I sit for a living. Yeah. And uh, I started listening to it. And I, I have to personally say that it really helped me because at that time, because I was so stressed, I, was, I, I love reading. I'm a huge reader. I've read Jack Kornfield. I've seen him yeah. speak. I read Dan Siegel. I read all these nerdy psychology books. <laughs> I, you know, I go to yoga, I work out. I was having trouble doing all of that. So your book, it was 365 little stories and little talks, and it was actually the only thing I could pay attention to. It was incredible. So oh, it was well, actually like, oh, absolutely. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. It was just right time, right place. And, uh, and then I thought, it was interesting. So then when this crisis hit, I, and this is just a personal thing. I mean, everyone's going through so much and I, I'm not going to put that and I'm going through something with the crisis, but it was almost like this crisis because I'd been listening to your book. I've been doing my own meditations, reading other books. It, it felt, it didn't feel as overwhelming, even though this crisis totally changed my life more than both of the other crises I was in. 
Sure. It, this crisis well, think, is far beyond, but it didn't feel as bad, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, right. sure it does. And I think one of the things that's, um, you know, the book, the book of Awakening, which is this just this year, the 20th anniversary edition came out, which is yes. hard to believe it's been 20 years. And, you know, I really, after my cancer journey 20 years ago, I really uh, was trying to create a book to fill the day book form with small doses of what matters um, in a way to give back. But I think what you're what you're uh, speaking to is one of the uh, foundations I find of peace, and that is how do we honor what we're going through while still uh, experiencing the wholeness and oneness of life. Mm. You know, often mm -hmm. often in our experience, what I'm going through, it, you know, is everything. You know. And then, uh, or I go the other way and I go, oh, well, there's such a big universe and all of history. What does it matter what I'm going through compared mm. to all of this? So we play seesaw. But I think the real kind of anchoring of peace where my soul as a portion of universal spirit touches into the ocean of all spirit is to let the heart open enough that what I'm going through matters and it's part of this larger fabric, which doesn't diminish, but supports what I'm going through. So, you know, it's like every wave in the ocean is a single little wave, but it's all supported by the deep. It's not, it's all one water. And so, you know, when I go, there's, there's uh, you know, two things here and, um, and I wrote about this in the book, in the book of awakening, there's a passage, can't remember what day, but it's a, it's a, it explores misery. And mm. so the, the little story is walk going on a hike up a mountain on a beautiful day. And all of a sudden I'm on the trail. I'm almost to the peak where I can see. And I stub my toe on a, like a big stone boulder. Oh, remember yes. it? Yeah. I remember the story. Yeah. And you know, not like, not like, stub like where i think i might have broke my toe like that kind of you know and so in that moment forget the beautiful day forget the view as soon as that happens the pain that registers through my whole being it, every the whole all of life is the pain in my toe which is actually mm -hmm. in my entire body but the view hasn't gone anywhere the miracle of the day and the light hasn't gone anywhere the climb I just did to get to that vantage point hasn't gone anywhere. And now after about 15, 20 minutes, the initial pain and shock subsides and now the toe is throbbing and I'm limping. And th there you have it. There's the functional choice point every day for each of us because I can't ignore the pain in my toe or the limp, but now I, oh, I see the sun is still shining. The view is still within reach. It's gonna take me a little longer and a little harder to get up those last few yards to the top because I'm limping, but I still have the choice to go see the view. And life is not A or B. Life is not the pain in our toe or the view. It's all of it. All things are true. And when we let one flow into the other, it actually sustains us. It doesn't diminish us. I think one of the difficult things, and it's all very human, we have to have compassion for ourselves, 
I think, and I know all these things because I violate them all the time. That's how we learn through experience. And, you know, I think one of the things that's very common for all human beings is I, we all tend to extrapolate our situation into a worldview. So if I'm feeling fearful, the world's not a safe place. If I'm feeling betrayed, if so, I'm in a love relationship and someone betrays me, you can't love. Love is not, it becomes now a principle, you know. And if I'm, right, and, and the thing is, we don't have to do that to justify the truth of our experience. In fact, and I knew this in a very, very uh, powerful moment in my journey, I, my first, uh, it was three weeks after I had a rib removed in my back. Um, I was went actually in New York City. I was in, living in Albany, New York, but I went to New York City to have a first chemo treatment, which was botched. So I was in a Holiday Inn, uh, getting sick every 20 minutes, with after just weeks after having a rib removed. The only medicine I was given was oral. And there I am with uh, loved ones. And, you know, I started to, re and, and really needing to go to the emergency room eventually, but every time I'd get sick, well, this can't keep going on. Do we go, do we not? And so there I was, you know, just about before dawn, slouched on the floor in this Holiday Inn and feeling terrified, in pain, not knowing what was happening next, what was going on. You know, I wasn't prepared for this. Um, but the sun started coming up. And probably because I was exhausted, not because I had any wisdom, because I was exhausted and couldn't stay closed, but it was open. My heart was fully open. I started to realize, you know, somewhere down the road, a child is being born. I'm suffering and a child is being born. And somewhere not far from here, two people are making love for the first time. And somewhere a parent and a child are, after years of estrangement, are sitting down and listening to each other for the first time. And, and in that moment of being broken open, it occurred to me, which has been a mantra in my life, is that to be broken is no reason to see all things as broken. And that it's quite beautiful that all of it was true, including coming back to the fact that there I was slouched on the floor, about to go to the emergency room, still scared, still not knowing what was gonna happen, but, but now bobbing as a suffering wave in the ocean of life. So, and so it's almost like this experience, these, these moments that you've had take practice because you have to get outside of yourself, but yet also you're inside yourself and yet they're, yeah. they're interweaving. Yeah. And it's a difficult stance because if anyone out there has been through a hard time, you know, you start getting self-focused and uh, a lot of times it's our inclination, at least mine. Well, this and then, is where, yeah, this is where surrender comes in mm -hmm. because it's a difficult stance. If we try to will it, if we try to negotiate it, if we try to map it, but if we let go, the heart washes in and out. And all of that came into me and brought light into my suffering body and came out. And, um, you know, there's a great Sufi poet, Ghalib, he has a great line. He said, uh, 
for the raindrop, Troy is entering the lake. Mm. And so, yeah, you know, and the, the raindrop doesn't lose itself by entering the lake. It adds to the lake, but it loses its boundaries. It becomes one with the lake. It still has a self. And great love and great suffering do this to us. Great love and great suffering uh, blur, take down what we see as our delineation or silhouette of ourself. We don't lose who we are. This is why through great love, we become who we are. We become each other. By loving you, you add to who I am. And by suffering, so this is, you know, one of the pieces I have in another book of mine, uh, Things That Join the Sea in the Sky, is that, you know, and it's very pertinent right now, um, because it's the lesson that, you know, when we have a moment of joy, should we feel guilty because so many people are suffering? Mm. Yes. No? I've well, heard that exact question. So I'd love, I'm glad you're talking about this. Well, let me, uh, well, I don't, let me, I can speak it. So I don't have the book right, right here this minute, but, but, you know, I, I have found that if I, if I am not, if I'm in a moment of joy or happiness and I'm not aware of people's suffering, that's harmful. Mm. But if I let it all in, then you know, what good does it do for all of us to suffer at once? We all take turns. So if I am blessed to have a moment of joy and happiness, then I need to lean into that and offer it as a beam of light to anyone who's suffering because tomorrow it'll switch. And our happiness and light, just, just the way light will fill every dark crack, that's what light does. That's one of the relationships between light and dark. So um, we need, when we're happy, to emanate and give our light everywhere so it will fill the cracks of suffering so that on another day, when you're happy and I'm not, I can receive from you. So we need to be fully, fully where we are, fully where we are. And at the same time, being recognizing, uh, you know, this is the, the great uh, Spanish poet, Garcia Lorca, Frederico Garcia Lorca. He was a very kind of surreal poet. And he had an image in a poem that was really like out there, very kind of shocking. But I think he was speaking about this. He had an image that said, who, while holding a newborn baby, cannot also be aware of the skull of a dead horse. You know, and people said, you know, his friends said, whoa, Garcia, you know, lighten up, you know. But I think that's I think that's what he was saying. I think he was talking about leaning into, wow, it's all happening. It's all happening everywhere. Life, death, struggle, peace, safety. And, and the, the powerful thing about life is it's the wholeness of life that is healing. You know, from the beginning of time, of course, human beings, right? We want, nobody signs up for the difficult stuff. Yeah, no, right, sign me up. No, I don't want that. Nobody does. But it's like, it's like water, okay? What we learn early, water is made out of hydrogen and oxygen. And I can't say to you, can I have a glass of the hydrogen, please? Because even if you could separate it, it would no longer be water. 
and it would no longer be life-giving or quenching. And so, you know, the everything in life, the water of life, you can't separate it out. And that's, you know, why we need each other, to hold each other up so we can get the sustaining out of the water of life and not drown in it. I like that because it reminds me a little bit, there's so many angles to go with this, but it reminds me of two things. Um, well, more than that, but here's the two. One was uh, the the Jungian concept of, of holding on to the opposites and putting yourself in the middle. And the opposites I was seeing is that, you know, humans, we all want to feel safe. But but if we if we if we're obsessed with safety too much and we become too vigilant, then we never get to let down our guard and really experience this excite, exciting vibrancy that life can be. And yet yeah. on, the other, on the other end, carelessness. Like I, I remember being careless and as a child and I was spinning in circles and making myself dizzy and I cracked my head and I still have a scar. You can't really see it. Oh, huh. I cracked my head on the end table at my grandparents' house. And I, th- and I remember saying to myself, one of those inner statements you say as a child, like I'm not doing that again or something like uh, that. Yeah, yeah. Well, now I know every day when I look right here, I have a scar on my head. And so then that made me think, okay, don't spin yourself in a circle. And I remember for years looking around if I was going to be playing rough, was there a table with a sharp edge, right? And so then I, it was like uh, uh, something evolved in me because I was restricting. I wasn't playing rough with my brother and wrestling and stuff. Something evolved where I said, okay, well, if we make a pillow fort in this one part of our house, then we can play rough and get crazy, right, within reason. So I came back to the middle, which is I'm trying to experience, have fun, uh, but my experience of spinning and being wild hurt me. Then I went too far into safety. I was too careless. So I think it's the hard part about uh, we tell ourselves these stories all the time, that these very personal stories when traumas happen to us and suffering happens to us, and we're forgetting the universal story. And the universal story is that it comes for everybody. It, it doesn't ever come yeah. when you want it. And it stinks and no one likes it, but we all have our turn. And it's the opposite of what you were saying, but also what I mean opposite in a good way, uh, mm-hmm. as a synchronistic way or whatever. Yeah, so there's two, there's, yeah. There's, two, there's two stories to share about that. You know, one is actually a ritual about this, the how, how our challenge is to live a full life and, and not, uh, you know, stay too uh, contained or you know, be so wild that we put ourselves at risk. And, you know, this goes back in the ancient Egyptian culture. There was a ritual that was believed when someone died, the gods would weigh the heart of the person who died. And on the other end of the scale was the feather of truth. And if the heart weighed too much, more than the feather of truth, it meant that you held on to too much in your experience you hadn't uh you were harboring too much like resentments and wounds and and you know not really and so that would prevent you from have living a full life but if the heart was lighter than the feather of truth it meant that you hadn't lived enough you didn't take make enough and you know i when i first read that and i wrote about this i think in the exquisite risk um 
yeah, or Finding Inner Courage, one of those two books. But um, is that that is a great, it's a great consideration, a ritual, a inventory to take while we're alive. While we're alive, you know? So how are we, you know, are we harboring too much that our heart, our heart is heavier than the feather of truth? Or are we too light? We're not living enough. And, you know, life is always this kind of navigating of course correction, which never ends. And the other is a story that's also in the Book of Awakening. It's an ancient, my telling of an ancient Hindu teaching story. And it's about a master and uh, a student. There's always a master and a student. And, and the master, uh, he's actually, he's really, he finds the student annoying, mostly because he reminds him of him when he was young. But the student's always complaining about life. Complain, complain, complain. So finally the master says one day, I want you to get a handful of salt and bring it to me in a cup of water, a glass of water and do it quietly. So the student comes along, he has the water, he, the salt is in the glass, the master says, drink it. So he drinks from the glass and he spits it out. Master says, what's the matter? He says, it's bitter. Master shakes his, nods his head. He says, I want you to get the same exact handful of salt and follow me quietly. So the Prentice is following with the salt in his hands, following the master who leads him to a lake. The master says, put the salt in the lake. And he does. The master says, drink from it. So he kneels, the apprentice kneels, he scoops up some water, it dribbles down his chin. He says, the master says, well, he says, oh, it's fresh. The master points his finger at him and he says, stop being a glass, become a lake. Now that, that's an ancient story about anonymous Hindu teaching story about we all get the same handful of salt. Some of us get it all at once. Some of us get it a grain at a time. Some of us, it does different things to us. But everybody, nobody gets out of here without their handful of salt. And that represents the pain, the suffering. But what's so instructive about this ancient story is we cannot rid ourselves of pain, but we can right-size it. So when we do experience pain, we can enlarge our sense of things, which is kind of what we were talking about earlier. Stop being a glass, become a lake. Because if you stay a glass, not only will you have your pain, but you will become bitter. Whereas if you can enlarge your sense of things, then it dilutes the sting of the salt. Now, it's, you could listen to that and say, well, okay, I'll never be a glass again. Oh, yes, you will. We all will because we're human. But it, what it means is I can recognize and say, oh, wait a minute. I rec Oh, yeah, I, I know this. I'm being a glass. Breathe, relax. So how do we enlarge our sense to things? Man, that's all a personal toolbox. Do I talk? Do I call up my oldest friend? Do I listen to music? Do I go out in nature? Do I write? Do I read? Do I, you know, do anything? What do we add to our toolbox? What are the specific? And so anyone listening, can you start to identify, become aware of what's in your toolbox that will enlarge your sense of things when you are tightening in anxiety, fear, or pain? 
I love that. And I, one of the things about that and, you know, adding things to your toolbox, I, I think maybe this is my learning style, but I, I often tell people, I think everything you said about all these tools you were mentioning involve action. And I think sometimes when we're going through difficult times, we feel paralyzed. And so, or, or we don't see the point, we're too depressed or we're too scared to do something. And so I often tell people, here's the deal. Here's the deal. The hardest part about yoga, one of my yoga teachers, one of my yoga teachers used to say the hardest part about yoga is getting onto your mat at the beginning of class and showing up for class. And I always thought that was funny, but it was true because when I finally got there, it was great. But the days I didn't get there, I didn't get to do my yoga and I, I didn't feel as good. So one of the things I want to, I, I uh, like to tell people is here's the thing. You won't maybe feel like doing any of the things that Mark just said. You may not feel like journaling or calling a friend or, or going for a walk in nature, or uh, maybe even I, I like listening. There's apps. Now you can listen to meditations on an app and get a subscription or whatever to insight timer or headspace, anything like that sounds true as a great app as well. You could do these things, but you're not going to feel like it. So try to make a little, especially if you're going through a hard time. I, I like to, I, I made a piece of paper and I wrote down, what are the things I can do when I'm really having a hard part of my day? And then I would go look at it visually. And then I would have to, because I'm in my late thirties, but so I got my phone when I was in my twenties, still kind of a thing. It's kind of a, phones are dangerous, same with computers. So I have to basically throw my phone in the other room and, you know, to its tether and uh, go somewhere and do it. And, and, and I, it, it's that when you're really feeling down, you don't feel like doing it. So if you can get past the first three or four minutes, all of a sudden in flow, I can do the thing or I, or I start saying, you know, I didn't really actually want to play an instrument. I actually wanted to read a book or I actually wanted to go stretch or I actually wanted to do. But when I take that action, instead of just being a receiver of information, I, I, something changes. Well, and I think the first, the first, the first action is simply opening our heart and um, acknowledging what we're we're feeling. And I know for me, when I'm feeling like I can't move forward or do things, or I think the thing that I invite myself and I would invite others is, you know, life, the difficult things in life push us away, and our job, which is a quiet courage is to hold nothing back and lean back in. And the first thing that that means to me is because the miracle of life is everywhere and everything is sacred is to just breathe and give my complete attention to one detail that's before me. It doesn't matter what it is. I'm looking out my window right now from my study. There's a tree just budding, you know, looking at one branch and watching it and giving my full being and attention to it until it starts to reveal its sacredness. I love that. I, I, I think that's a simple thing we can all do. I, I, uh, I learned some things from a Jungian <clears throat> friend of mine about, it was interesting, he called it talking to trees. And that was the exercise. And I had to go find a tree that I liked and we would do this whole thing. And then I would talk to the tree and, and it ended up talking to myself, um, which is an interesting one thing. But I, I remember from your book, Drinking from the River of Light, 
there was this story you told in there that really resonated with me that uh, about about nature. And you kind of, it's in the part about what it means to perceive, but I guess I'll just read a little bit if that's okay. Sure. <clears throat> um, let's see here. Okay. There's so much here. So there's this is out of context. So you need to read the book, everyone listening. Uh, After finishing my epic poem and exhausting my out-of-balance creative drive, I was struck down by cancer. In this unexpected tumble, the depth of my perception expanded vastly because of my near-death experience in my 30s. I was rushed by life so fully and harshly that I had no choice but to take in life entirely at a felt level. There I was ripped free of all the maps I had inherited and covered so thoroughly with understanding that I feared I would drown. But there was a particular moment of perception that transformed me completely. I had a bone marrow sampling and a spinal tap during the same hospital visit. Afterward, I was sent home a bit battered and told to lie for six to eight hours before moving because the spinal fluid had a chance to regenerate before the spinal chance had to regenerate would cause a migraine. Well, it was hard for me to sit still. And every time I moved, I was thrust back down on the couch in pain. It was as if the force of life was insisting that I be still. When I was, I finally looked out the window to see an apple tree in my front yard. I had seen this tree a hundred times, yet never really looked at it. Now, unable to move without inducing pain, I was forced into a moment of indigenous perception. Seeing the apple tree freshly, it came alive, and I listened to the tree for the very first time. Strange as it was, the apple tree spoke to me, not in words, but with the bare presence that said, When you survive this, there will be no more making things up. When you survive, you will only bear witness to the truth of things as they are. There is no explaining such a moment of ap- apprehension. You cannot dis- you can dismiss it if you want, as some have, as a hallucination due to the medicine or to the pain. But I know the truth of that mysterious moment, and it has shaped my life to that day, from to this day. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I think the thing that's so important here, which I was open to so deeply there, and, and, and let me make the distinction. I, I mentioned indigenous per, perception. And so what I mean by that is we, as, as modern people, we are so out of balance with our minds leading us first. And we're, we're also, that we, and we give such um, prominence to the mind that we think we create all reality. And we don't. The mind is an inlet, not a container or a generator. It's an inlet. That is, it lets things in and out and it communicates and puts us in relationship with other life. And so indigenous perception is one in which we relate to other life. We don't watch it. We don't name it. We don't analyze it. You know, in the West, um, the reward uh or or i should say the reward for understanding truth is wisdom but in the east in the deep and oldest traditions the reward for experiencing truth is joy now sure i'd love to have wisdom and joy but if i've got to choose i'll take joy And the difference is, you know, in experiencing, embodying 
versus analyzing and naming. You know, in the in the beginning, in 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 earlier times, we name things as a, as a way, almost as a bookmark for what's invisible, what's ineffable, what's larger than we can comprehend. So you know, we and but what's happened in mo in modern times is that uh, the name becomes a container. And so, you know, we can all look like if we look from if when we were flying, right. <laughs> you know, right? If we look, you know, you know, from up there, there's no state lines. Mm. And we look at a map. We all know this, right? You could, I could draw any state, no matter how horribly I draw it, you'll recognize it. But from up there, it's one indivisible land. Now, there, there are, you know, there are means of navigating life in the, in the world of circumstance that it's helpful to have those boundaries. But then at some point we mistake the map for the land. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing. Names tend to, so, you know, indigenous wisdom is not me saying, Oh, that's a tree. And yeah, the tree wasn't, you know, it was me. I made it all up. And, um, but no, to relate to the tree opens us to other languages than just what we speak. So another example is, you know, my grandmother who passed away back during that time in the eighties, um, very dear. She was a major figure in my life and uh, I loved her dearly and more of a mother to me than my own mother. And, um, and, you know, many years later, you know, I would have, and in this one particular time I had, so, I missed her and I had this vivid dream, so vivid, it felt like a visitation, not like a dream. So again, you know, people will say, well, you miss, you, you know, because you missed her, you conjured a dream. Mm -hmm. And when we insist on that, that we're the author of everything that we experience, that cuts off the mystical realm where I'm, because I missed her, she came and visited me. So this says, no, imagination isn't conjuring reality, it's entering reality. It's entering realities that aren't always visible. And this is the same thing about metaphor. You know, metaphor is a, a, an analogy or a word picture that makes visible relationships that are hard to put into words. And we don't create them as I believe as much as view them. So this was interesting because I mentioned in the book, the drink from the river of light that, you know, I had uh, an editor uh, at one point uh, I had a line in, in uh, another book about that, you know, the metaphor is seen and she wanted to correct me and say, no, you see the metaphor. Uh, that was the passive tense. And you, and I said, no, that's not what I'm saying. That just like whether I see the metaphor or not is like whether I climb a mountain or not, the view is still there. So the metaphor is seen. And this brings up a deep betrayal that's even in our syntax. We're taught that an active tense is better than a passive tense. I wouldn't even call it passive. I'd call it receptive. Mm. 
And that is the tense of being, not doing. So, so every, what all this says is that when we, and this goes back to the very thing about having inertia of despair or depression or anxiety, or we all have moments or moods or times or years like that. And, but I think it really helps if we can honor that all things are living. All things have their own agency. All things have gifts to be received. And so we can honor what we're going through, but, but the courage to stay open to that indigenous perception that everything has something to offer, to teach. Everything's a teacher. If we can lean into it and listen. I couldn't agree more. I think it's a very difficult stance because I just said stance. See, it's a very <laughs> difficult thing to discuss because when you discuss this, I think because of our Western, um, we're swimming in hundreds of years of absolutism and trying to have scientific breakthroughs, which is great. And also trying to, you know, people also believe that their religion is the best religion. It's the only religion and it's the one you should subscribe to or their belief system or their politics. And so there's this, there's this power struggle here in the West a lot. And not that there's not elsewhere, but especially this is where I grew up. So I know about this one. And, um, and so when, when we, when we start talking about openness and, and, and being open to learning from different things I, I, it's interesting because unless a person is also open, it's difficult to have a discussion of understanding because it, it is uh, c confounding and strange to someone who must, who is brought up and taught in school that everything has to have a label and a category and uh, a place in history. I put that in quotes for people that can't see the video through the podcast. Uh, and so I, I wholeheartedly agree. How do we bring back? I, I heard someone say recently they were sick of people demystifying everything and they wanted us to remystify things. And, well, I don't think, I don't uh, think we need to, uh, to do either directly. I think. Oh, right. That, okay. Yeah. I, think, <laughs> I see there. I, there I go. Black I think, and white, I think, right? I think that the, uh, you know, the, the deep beauty of living is that, uh, that, you know, everything, and let's look at the sun as, as a great teacher. The sun mm -hmm. emanates light and warmth in all directions without preference. It doesn't choose, doesn't say today, I'm just going to shine on the roses. And the heart is an inner sun. And our job by being who we are is to emanate love and warmth in all directions without preference. Yes, during the days we make choices and are you trustworthy? Can I share with you? Can I be vulnerable? But that's opening and closing the blinds. The inner light never stops shining. And we don't, and I don't believe personally that we can change anyone. Great love and great suffering transform us. And you, we can't hasten that. We can't slow it down. You know, Jung also spoke about uh, his, you know, in the, in the Polynesian tradition, there's a term mana, not the mana that's the bread that's in the Christian tradition, Judeo-Christian tradition, 
but mana that means the numinous presence that is in all things. The stone, the chair, the river, everything has a spirit that emanates. And Jung took that and said, I want to add a psycho-spiritual definition to mana. And he defined mana as the unconscious influence of one being on another. And so when that inner sun, when we can be who we are, we all know what happens when the sun, the, the, the real sun, the physical sun, when it emanates, everything grows to it. And when we can be who we are, we grow to each other. So forget persuasion, forget argument, forget debate. I'm really not interested. They're all a distraction. Let's just be who we are and grow in each other's presence. I, I love it. Yes. And I think that when I was thinking about all those arguments, when I've tried to explain things to people, why am I trying to explain it to people if I can't, if I could just show them, you know, instead? And that brings us back to what you were saying earlier. Seeing is, is seeing and is is kind of believing. You didn't say that, but see, like having it demonstrated, taking action, uh, and so trying to live that way. There, there's no need to debate. It, I just I would admire the way that you talk about life because I feel like it's very universal. Uh, and but it was interesting to me how you said that all of your books are kind of a, a progression of questions that you're asking and, and, and things that you're working through. And, uh, because you, it, it's a very open stance where you don't have to, um, it's a completely different thing we're talking about than the Western mindset. So I loved in this book, uh, drinking from the river of light, how you, just one of the metaphors, you talked about with God and, and imagery. So if you mind, if I read that and maybe, sure. that's, and then we'll, and then we'll start to wrap here. Um, there was, you, you were talking about imagery and how important imagery was, uh, for instance, in Pablo Neruda's poem uh, in 1936 during the Spanish civil war called, I'm explaining a few things. He says the blood of the children on the sidewalk is like the blood of the children on a sidewalk. When, when trying to say what is unsayable, we readily turn to images and metaphors and even stories to tease that what is unseen into view. But when the world is starkly before us, then turning images only distances us from the truth at hand. Then we are challenged to simply speak of things as they are. Then the blood of the children on the sidewalk is exactly what it is. It must be rendered without any filters. So since everything is alive, how do we honor its aliveness and listen for the flow of life force hidden in the open? No one really knows, but the literature is the history of our attempts to say what is unsayable and to bear witness honestly to what is before us. Perhaps God is an infinite secret hiding in the open, waiting for each of us to slow down enough to receive what is at first unseeable. By doing so, we become conduits of spirit that continually reunify the whole. This is how life forms begin. Energy moves through particles, bringing them together. But it is the openness of the particle that enables the life chain to assemble. And what is the heart but the most transparent particle of being known to mankind? Yeah. Yeah, thank you. So um, 
Yeah, I you know I think that this comes right back to where we are in in this horrible pandemic and being you know in a lot of ways you know the word the word Sabbath means the one day we don't turn one thing into another and we have been forced this is like a forced Sabbath for the entire earth we have all been forced to stop and stop turning one thing into another and to see what is. And there's a lot of pain around it because of how we're being asked to stop. And, you know, there's so many, uh, so many people are suffering, it's heartbreaking and it's nobody's fault. And you look, but you look at the last 150 years and it's not the fault of the people who are suffering and dying. But you know, in technology and how we as a as a species have ravaged the planet, and you know, from that large perspective, you know, what if the virus is is the Earth's antibody against us? What if the Earth has said, "We've had enough. Stop. Stop." And you know, this too is, uh, again, nobody's, no, no individual's fault. And so many people are suffering, but we're being, we're, we're not going to be the same on the other side of this. And many of the things that most of the traditions have been speaking of will come to the fore in very real ways. How do we behold ourselves? You know, even the fact of sheltering in place that by care, truly caring for ourselves, we're caring for everybody. Wow, I haven't thought of it that way. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, that's how all the traditions in their own way speak about that. And now we're being forced to literally do it. It's not just taking care of yourself. It's by taking care of yourself, you're taking care at the same time, taking care of everyone. Um, and so we're kind of being forced back to very fundamental spiritual basics. And the question is, um, what, you know, what, you know, I was, you know, I often say, you know, cancer was just a disease, but what it opened in me, what it transformed me, changed my life. And so this virus is just a disease, but the question is on the other side, what are we going to take from it? All of us. And how will it change, you know, you know, uh, the great Sufi teacher, Hazrat Iniyat Khan said, God breaks the heart again and again and again until it stays open. Until it stays open. We're all being broken open. And how will we see and behold each other on the other side? That's the real question. I love that question. And I want to just invoke the listeners to say, even no matter what you're going through after the pain or during the pain, there's always an opportunity to ask more questions and there's an opportunity to see how we emerge on the other side as well. So I think we're, I really appreciate uh, all your words, Mark, and uh, sharing this time. I, I want to tell the listeners a little bit about your um, how they can get a, get in touch with you, especially right now. Sure, uh, this is going to come out in the middle of a quarantine. Uh, so since people are, uh, most people are at home, 
Um, if you've got Facebook, if you just look up Mark Nepo and the, that will link will be in my, the notes also Instagram, same thing. And a YouTube, just, uh, put that your name into YouTube and you have a YouTube channel and I guess you're posting uh, daily right now. Yeah. So since the, uh, the uh, shelter in place started, um, I've just been offering, uh, posting videos every day, um, reading a poem, sharing a story, reflecting just to offer something. Um, so that's just been going on in the last, uh, 10, 15 days or so. So people can find that there. And I will be, you know, one of a lot of my events, of course, is everyone's are being changed around and everything. But I uh, was scheduled to be at the Sophia Institute in Charleston, May 15 and 16. And we've just turned that into a virtual retreat online. So if, um, the, if you go to my website or the um, Sophia Institute's website in Charleston, South Carolina, um, there's a link to register for a Zoom It'd be a Friday and a day and a half uh, online retreat, which we're going to try to do uh, virtually so we can still be together. And then I will, in the next, if people just check back to my website with the new book coming out in the next month or, you know, in June or so, I'll be offering a, a you know, also a retreat online out of the new book as well. Excellent. So all of those links, uh, you can just Google Mark Nepo or just go right to the show notes and click and you're right there. So I'm so glad that you're offering all of this free stuff, which is awesome. And then for people that want to get more involved, the book of the soul is coming out and you can pre-order that I'm assuming through your website. Yes. Through my website or Amazon or Barnes and Noble. It's really everywhere. Yep. And then for people that really want to get involved and maybe do some work since we've got a bit more time on our hands right now. Uh, the retreats you're offering are coming up with the Sophia Institute and then a few more coming up that will probably be online for the time being. So. Yes. Yeah. And the more extensive ones, there'll be, there'll be a fee for the more extensive ones, but that, you know, they'll be reasonable for people. Oh yes, absolutely. Well, thank you, Mark, for coming on and yeah. Blessings yeah. to you. Uh, blessings to you too. Thanks so much. It's been a great uh, journey together. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with people you know. I would surely appreciate it. Until next time on The Intentional Clinician, I wish you all a safe and peaceful week. Because we are all going through a tough time right now, I want to make sure everyone knows that telehealth, online, and phone counseling is available. If you are in the state of Michigan, you can schedule with any of the excellent clinicians at Health for Life Grand Rapids and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting www.healthforlifegr.com or giving the office a call between 9 and 5 p.m. Monday through Thursday at 616-200-4433. You can even get started online and because of the recent things that have been happening with the government and the insurance companies, they now will cover telehealth 
uh, just as regular counseling visit. So if you've got insurance, go for that. If you have Medicaid, we take that as well, and we can do a reduced cash rate for those in need. If you're looking for an Emdria consultant, I am working on beginning my Emdria consultant in training right now, and I can provide 15 of the 20 hours needed to become Emdria certified. I'm going to be starting uh, the group soon. I said that a few months ago, but then the crisis hit, so I haven't started them yet. And those will both be online and when available in person. For details, you can check out my website, Counseling Supervisor GR or Health for Life GR, or just send me an email. And now for the disclaimer. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss and his guest. And while these are based upon literature he has read and his experience in the field, they should not be viewed as the definitive opinion on any subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you are in a crisis, please dial 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Line at 1-800-273-8255. All right, everybody. Please take care of yourselves. Please be safe out there and follow the rules that are going on. And if you're looking for more content, I really encourage you to pick up one of Mark Nepo's audiobooks, one of his books, or just tune in to his social media. All right, until next time. This has been Paul Kraus of The Attentional Clinician. Understand what you're giving